1: Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, honored and humbled to be with you once again, Uh, especially humbled by the fact that I am again all alone here in my apartment doing this for you guys. Uh, I'm starting to feel like no one wants to play with me, and I'm trying very hard not to take it personally. Uh, I'd like to think that I'm just you know getting punked or something, but once again, no one is able to join me, and so we are going to continue uh reviewing the final table of the w s o p main event uh before we get into that, i want to thank you guys for all of the tweets and all of the love that you've been sharing of late. I have been. Uh, on Twitter telling everyone about my let's just say frustrating experience in dealing with Bally's las vegas's non-existent customer service slash risk management division uh in their minds, nothing happened last month, so I'm not sure what all i'm all the fuss is about because apparently I was not burglarized, and uh someone like me doesn't even deserve the courtesy of a phone call. So yeah, I have yet to hear from anyone there. It's been over a month now since this unfortunate crime occurred on their property and I have heard not one word from anyone about it. So I'm now in the process of finding an attorney. So uh, thank you guys for your recommendations. If anyone has not tweeted at me yet with your favorite Las Vegas attorney that I can get to help me hold bally's responsible for what went on last month when uh you know for those who haven't listened to previous episodes very quickly i left my hotel room to go play poker and when i came back a lot of my stuff was missing so uh, it was a pretty clear case of burglary and uh the police came we did a report security came up and uh you know they told me that i would be hearing from someone From the hotel. It seems ridiculous to me that it's been over a month. Furthermore, they haven't responded to any of my tweets or my phone calls when I call and I say I want to speak to risk management. They patch me through to a voicemail and then I leave the details and no one calls me back. So that feels good as a longtime customer uh, to be treated that way. Obviously, that's a great feeling. So anyway, uh, enough about that. You guys have heard that for weeks now, but it it is an ongoing saga. So I want to keep those who are <laughs> remotely interested in it uh, up to date on what's going on. So what else is going on? I'm about to leave actually uh, this weekend, Saturday, April 13th. I will be flying down to Florida where I plan to participate in the Seminole Hard Rock Poker Open, which is a big $5 million guaranteed tournament at the uh, Hard Rock in Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood area. So I'm really excited to play that event. A lot of people I know are in Reno for Run It Up Reno, so that means I might have uh, a good chance of playing against people I don't know, which generally speaking, when I don't recognize my opponents, uh, that's a good sign, because I, I think that I know basically everyone that's in the very, very top echelon of poker, although I'm sure that there's somebody that's like an online crusher that once in a while will show up at my table, and it might take me a while to figure out that I'm playing against a world beater, but typically I know... Before the cards are even dealt, whether I'm a favorite in the game or not. So I'm hoping to go to Florida and see a lot of unfamiliar, unsuspecting faces at my table. And uh, yeah, wish me luck, guys. I'll be playing in the in a couple of events down there. Uh, so let's get right into it. You know, we have been going over the World Series of Poker final table for the last several weeks. This actually dates back to last October when I first started reviewing, or maybe even September, when when we were reviewing the coverage as it was being shown on ESPN. Obviously, we had a lot of other stuff going on, and we kind of got behind as far as trying to keep up with the weekly broadcasts. But if you're interested in watching and, and reviewing these hands for yourselves, I recommend you get a subscription to Poker Go. It's like $8 a month or something like that it's like ridiculously low price and you can get so much poker content you could literally never watch it all and a lot of it is from the world series and other prestigious events around the world so and they're not paying me to say that um I'm just i a big fan of the product. I have done some work for them as an announcer, but I don't get a kickback or I don't have a a promo code to give you that would show them that you you found out about them because of this podcast. It's just me as your friend telling you that if you're not a PokerGo subscriber, you're doing it wrong. So we're down to seven players, and we've gotten to seven players fairly recently. The blinds are still at 400. 800 with a 100 ante. So there is 1.9 million in the pot before the cards are even dealt. Uh, Aram Zobian, who has been a very short stack through much of this final table, has recently doubled up. And uh, he is on the button in this hand with the Queen of Spades... 10 of hearts so he's got queen 10 offsuit folded to him on a on the button at a seven-handed table he's got three uh, 32 million behind and he's right in the middle of the pack I think he's in fourth place at this point Uh, he opens as I think pretty much all of us would he makes it 1.8 million which has been for better or for worse the standard raise size at this table uh, for this blind level. So he makes it one point eight. And Joe Catta, so the small blind folds and then Joe Cata in the big blind defends with the king of clubs, eight of clubs. Cata has Zobian covered by about ten million chips. So we are playing Zobian stack, which again is thirty two million. So we've got 40 big blinds, is one way of looking at it. I like to think of it in terms of M. So our M is right around 17. So we have some maneuverability, uh, however you look at this, especially with this small raise uh, to start things off. We have a lot of wiggle room before we get anywhere near pot commitment. And the flop comes. So yeah, Cat Calls, and now heads up, the flop comes Ace of Clubs, Jack of Spades, deuce of clubs and with 4.7 million in the pot Kata who has flopped a flush draw with the King Ada clubs checks it over to Zobian who bets only 1.4 million into the 4.7 million pot now I know I've been harping for the last several weeks on sizing being too small for my liking, and I'm going to harp again, guys, so feel free to fast-forward if you want. Uh, I don't understand what this bet does for us. Um, if you have an ace and there's a club draw out there and any number of possible straight draws, you should be betting bigger to protect your hand. If you are bluffing, you really can't get anything to fold, I unless it's something like pocket fours or something like like that it would have to be a next to nothing hand. So maybe that's the goal of this bet is to try to bluff kata off of a small pocket pair. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of this bet sizing. I would much prefer uh, a half pot bet here which would be pretty standard if you had a top pair, which I think is the the easiest hand for Zobian to represent. Having opened from the button, and now when the ace comes, you can just go ahead and bet half the pot. Uh, If Kata is not paying attention to bet sizing, then there's no problem with betting $1.4 But I think it would be a mistake to assume that a player of Joe Kata's caliber didn't notice that you just bet like 20% of the pot. Okay, fine. It's more like 28%. But still, you guys get the point. This bet is too small to do any job. So, to me, I'm not a fan of this. I know it's a trend. I know it's what a lot of players are doing, both online and live nowadays. But I think it's a trend we're going to see uh, go away very soon because it just does, doesn't get the job done. And not to belabor this, guys, but what do you think Aram Zobian would have bet if he had something like ace-queen of hearts and the flop comes ace of clubs, jack of spades, deuce of clubs? I think he would bet a lot bigger than 1.4. I'd be surprised to see anyone bet that small into 4.7 million with top pair because you're pricing people in to call you with a gut shot, to call you with a flush draw, to call you with a lot of combos, call you with jack 10 even. you know It's pretty much the right price to even call with second pair. So I really don't like the sizing. Enough about that. Kata just calls. Now that's to me is interesting. He's flopped the king high flush draw on this board and his opponent makes a very weak small bet. A 28% of the pot bet uh, on this flop. And Kata, who only has king high, of course he's got a flush draw as well, uh, doesn't pounce on that with a big semi-bluff raise. And I think that Uh, One reason why Kato might decide to just flat this bet is because he has a draw to the nuts, for one thing, and uh, often it's it's correct to not semi-bluff with a draw to the nuts. Um, Another reason he might do that is because he doesn't want to raise and reopen the betting in case uh, Zobian is making this tiny bet with a monster hoping to get raised, So, I mean, I think that's kind of far-fetched. I don't think you'll see play that fancy at the main event final table generally, uh, and certainly not with this lineup. Uh, So I don't think Kata has much to worry about, and I think that in his shoes I would normally just raise and take it with my king high. Uh, He does elect to call, and this means I don't really like the way either player played the flop uh the turn is the four of spades which doesn't really change anything um i guess the five tray got there and there are now two clubs as well as two spades on the board uh now here's where things kind of get interesting kata with the nut flush draw checks again and this time, Aram zobian bets 5.1 million into the 7.5 million pot. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. If you want to tell me that the point of betting small on the flop is to see whether your opponent has a big enough hand to check raise, and then assuming it's just a call, or even potentially a fold on the flop, then you can always bet big on the turn. Like, I can see where that could be a line that makes sense. And I have actually seen this of late in some of the, uh, especially the higher limit cash games that I've played in the last few months. I've noticed a lot of players really betting a tiny amount on the flop, almost begging to get called or raised, and then shutting the whole hand down on 4th Street, which I think is what... Zobian will do, in this case, every time Kata doesn't have at least a pair of aces. I don't think Kata can call this bet on the turn with a pair of jacks. Uh, Obviously, he's totally priced out of calling with any type of straight draw, flush draw. Uh, Maybe if he had specifically the five-tray, no, the king-queen, maybe, yeah, like a king-queen of clubs or... Uh, Queen, 10 of clubs. Those are hands that Cata might be able to justify calling this really large bet because he's got multiple outs, the flush outs as well as the straight outs. But even then, uh, for a bet this size, he's barely getting the right price, assuming he's got some type of implied odds uh, to back it up. So things just get a little bit too murky here for Kata. Cata. And he folds. Now, I don't mean to be results-oriented, but I think when you flop a flush draw and your opponent bets so small, it might be better to go ahead and end the hand on the flop with a big check raise. It wouldn't even have to be that big a check raise. I mean, if the $1.4 million means what I think it means, namely that... Zobian doesn't have much, or he would have bet more. Then why don't you just go ahead and put in a raise to five? Let's say five million. So he makes it one point four million, and then you raise to five million, and now you're going to win the hand so often. And another reason I like this play is because certain cards could come on the turn that would allow Kata to continue the semi bluff. Uh, For example, say a 10 of diamonds. Now he would have a gut shot with a queen as well as the flush draw, and that would certainly be a card that Kata could continue barreling on the turn. Uh, I just think poker is so much easier when we take the lead in the hand rather than being uh, the one calling and checking and calling. It's just... You, you open more doors to being outplayed with that type of approach. So I found that hand interesting because it's the first time Zobian really had chips at this table. And he showed us all with that hand that he knew what to do with a stack. So a little while later, at the same blind level, still seven-handed, Tony Miles under the gun... With Pocket Kings. He's got the two Black Kings. And he has been fairly tight at this table. Um, Tony's image at this table, I think, is is a tight image. Um, he's been a nice guy, kind of friendly, talking to everybody. But he, when he's in a pot, he takes forever to make decisions. And he generally decides to fold. So he's one of these take forever and then fold types, which may come into play uh as you'll see in a moment. So anyway, he's got the Kings under the gun, seven handed. He opens to one point eight million. So that has been the standard bet, and he didn't change it just because he had a premium hand. He's got forty one point eight million behind, which means that His M is about 22. And Michael Dyer in the cutoff has Ace of Spades, King of Diamonds. So it folds to Dyer in the cutoff. Now, Dyer has been the chip leader forever. He's got 135 million. The next highest stack is only about 68 million. So he is absolutely crushing this table. He's got like 40% of the chips with seven players left. It's kind of crazy. Uh, and it's been this way for quite a while. Now, Dyer has gotten here, as, you've, as you know, if you listen to previous episodes or watched it yourself, through very aggressive play. He's been three-betting, four-betting, uh, taking it down anytime somebody checks, he bets. He's been a very, very aggressive force at this table. Which is why it's so surprising that he chose to just call with the ace-king. So, let's talk about this. How many of us would ever put ace-king into our late position calling range? Now, I understand that the open came from early position. All right, I'll grant you that. But it's not like it came from early position at a full table. It's not like he was under the gun at a 10-handed table or a 9-handed table. This is a 7-handed table. So I, I give kudos to Michael Dyer for just keeping his wits about him in a situation when many of us wouldn't be able to. Uh, and what I mean by that is, I don't know how many of you play the loose, aggressive style, but if I'm at the late stages of a tournament and I have a large stack... This is my favorite type of poker, which is I'm going to take every pot that nobody else seems to want because my stack is so big, nobody really wants to mess with me. I like being in that position. I feel like it's easier to accumulate chips. Uh, In general, it's easier to win when you're winning. (laughs) Put it that way. And I found that to be true in cash games as well, for whatever reason. So when you've done more than your share of raising and re-raising and re-re-raising over the last three days and that everyone has now been able to go back and watch how you played for the last several hours and all day yesterday and you know that your table image is this guy likes to 3-bet with hands like 6-4 of hearts to just have the the presence of mind to just call ...with the Ace King, possibly because you're suspicious that your opponent has a monster, which would be a result of having observed him for hours now, trying to stay out of the way, and probably never getting out of line from under the gun, even seven-handed. So kudos to Michael Dyer for just flatting here and not getting into a raising war with Ace King... Which is a very strong hand at a full table, but even stronger at a seven handed table. But he just flats, and everyone else gets out of the way. So the two see the flop heads up. And it comes ace of hearts, seven of hearts, five of spades. Now it's easy for the commentators to say something like, wow, well, when you're running good, you're running good. Uh, it's a good thing Michael Dyer didn't three bet before the flop or Tony Miles would be in a world of trouble. Now you know all these kind of comments and it's all true, but to me the beauty of it is not what came on the flop. It's just the fact that Michael Dyer didn't end up getting his stack in pre flop. Which stacks are such that it it would be hard to do. But you know what what's your Reaction in Dyer's shoes if Miles opens to 1.8, and then you have Ace King, which for most of us is an automatic three bet 80% of the time in most situations. So you make it what 5 million ish with your Ace King, and then Miles comes over the top for what 13 million. And remember, we're only playing 42 million effective, basically. So that's almost a third of his stack. And then what he's supposed to just flat and try to see a flop with ace-king? Like, I can really see where a lot of us would get into big trouble with the ace-king. Now, we now know that the ace is coming on the flop, yada, yada, yada. That's results-oriented. My point is, Dyer didn't get a lot of chips in before the flop as a 70% underdog which is about what you are with ace-king against kings. So, good work. Now the flop comes ace-seven-five with two hearts, and there's 5.5 million in the pot. Miles puts in a continuation bet, 2.5 million. It's a little small, but it's fine. It's not as obscene as some of the uh, flop bets we've discussed recently. Uh, Dyer calls, and he kind of gives off a tell. If you watch this clip, uh, he kind of pretends to be annoyed as he flicks in the $2.5 with a a different type of flourish than he normally would have. I think at that point, Dyer is hoping that Miles has a hand like Ace-Jack. Obviously, you want your opponent to also have an Ace whenever you have Ace-King, and it comes Ace high. Uh, So, yeah, he calls, and I did notice a little something. It's a little hard to describe, but if you watch, it's kind of like an annoyed call that seems like an actor to me. Uh, Now, on the turn with 10,500,000 in the pot, the nine of hearts comes, which puts three hearts on the board, and Miles checks over to Dyer, who bets 5.2 million, half the pot. And Miles takes way too long before he folds. I mean, look, Tony, you can't beat any ace. You can't beat any flush. You're not going to check Ray's bluff, turn your kings into a bluff. You're you're folding. 100% you're folding. So just fold and let's play another hand. Anyway, don't waste time in poker tournaments, guys. None of us are getting any younger. Uh, there's no face to be saved okay and there's no stalling for other tables to bust so you can climb the stupid ladder okay you're you're done check bet fold let's move on sorry everyone i just i think all tournaments and in fact all sports perhaps all things in life should have a shot clock Okay, guys, let's do one more hand from the final table. Here, uh, six players left, so someone busted out. Uh, Yeah, it was Alex Linsky that we discussed on the podcast before. So we're down to six players, so people are really starting to feel like they have a shot at the bracelet if anyone can move the mountain That is Michael Dyer. Folded to John Sin in the cutoff. And he's got about 65 million behind. So he's in very healthy shape. With an M of 34-ish. He's got an 8 of hearts and a 6 of hearts. And he opens to 1.8 million. Which is the standard bet and has been for almost two hours as we reach the final minutes of this level. Uh, The button folds and then Nick Mannion, who has just been taking a beating all day. He started the day with something like 120 million. He's all the way down to 67 million, which by the way, at this point was still good for second place out of the remaining six so all the chips were <laughs> up top nick manion was barely in second sin is right on his heels with 65 million manion was 67 million and of course at this point mr dyer has like about 150 million and is running away with the tournament so manion i don't want to tell you what manion has but uh he three bets to 5.5 million. So. It folds back to sin. With the 8-6 of hearts. And. Sin has. A decision to make. Uh, there's now 8.7 million. In the pot. And it only costs. Sin. 3.7 million. To call. So he's getting about 2.3 to 1, just in my head. Please don't send angry letters if my math is a little off there. He's getting well over 2 to 1 to call, put it that way. Uh, He's got eight six of hearts, and Mannion is in the small blind, so Sin has position, Now, Nick Mannion hasn't been the type to three-bet light. Um, That doesn't mean that he can't three-bet light. It's just, you know, he's kind of struck everyone as an amateur player that kind of bets when he has it and checks and folds when he doesn't, doesn't get too far out of line, doesn't seem to have a lot of tricks up his sleeve, and has largely been overmatched, and frustrated having Michael Dyer two to his left all day, as any of us would, because not only was Michael Dyer playing great, he was running like God. So every time somebody tried to go up against him, he seemed to flop top pair better, which doesn't make things any easier. Uh, With all that said, Nick Mannion has been completely beaten down and is still in second chip position. All that considered, I don't think I could fold. And maybe I should. And maybe this is a hole in my game. Maybe I have a leak that I like to see too many flops. You know, the commentators were even saying uh, that this is a really big three bet from Mannion. But it actually isn't. I mean a pot sized bet at that point would have been closer to 8 million. Uh and that's a tough bet to call. For me if if you know if he did a PLO if he just had pot then that would be a tough bet to call in position with the 8 of hearts 6 of hearts. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do anything like that and to me it just feels like a pretty easy Call and see a flop. It's not like we're so short stacked that we can't afford to speculate. I mean, you guys have an M of 34 that we're playing here. Uh, I don't really understand, uh, you know, 80 big blinds. So I don't get it. I mean, Sin has to know that his skill edge over Nick Mannion is considerable. He's been playing against him for several days now, he knows that Mannion is much more likely to make mistakes than he is. Uh, He also has position and he has a hand that when it flops well, it's almost impossible for your opponent to put you on having it. With all that in mind, plus the perfectly reasonable 2.3 to one that he's being offered from the pot. I think it should be a no brainer call. Uh, Obviously John sin is the main event champion and he beat 7,800 opponents to get there. So I don't want to say that he doesn't know what he's doing. And I have been quite complimentary of his play in general, on this podcast and in life. Uh, I just don't get this one. Now, if the three bet had come from a tough player from Michael Dyer uh, or if I somehow wouldn't have position on the flop, like if there were some other variable uh, at, at play here, then I could understand the decision to fold. But this one, uh, ever since I saw it, has bewildered me to the point where I just, I don't get it. Maybe it's just that's what happens at the main event final table, which is why it takes three days to play and why heads up last 12 hours. Maybe just the the structure is too good. But anyway, Sin lays it down. After much deliberation, it's not like he's snap-folded. I just, I don't get it. I don't understand. Anyway, uh, I want to talk a little bit about a discussion I started on Twitter. It actually started with a joke, but it kind of got into a little bit more uh, of an actual discussion. The joke was basically a professional tournament player says, Oh, I love playing this tournament. The structure is so good. And then fast forward to that same player buying into that tournament nine hours after it started. So, I mean, I think what pros always mean when they use the the phrase good structure is that it's a slow tournament. Uh, you know, to me, there is an inflection point where a tournament can be so slow that it actually hurts your bottom line. Now, obviously, that's not true of the main event. I'll play two-hour levels you know, for, for three weeks if it leads to me winning $9 million. Uh, but most tournaments that have these really long, really slow structures don't have anywhere near $9 million up top, and you just end up destroying your hourly by sitting in this tournament where people can fold in spots where they'd have to give action in a faster structure. Uh, Maybe we've gone too far with this idea of good structure equaling really slow structure and letting people buy in on day two with 100 big blinds. It just seems silly at some point that we're actually taking the action out of poker. Why should I call with eight six of hearts? when I have an M of 34 and there's six players left and a couple of them are probably going to bust in the next you know level or two and I'll win an extra million dollars. It's just there's not enough incentive to get after it. Now, that said, John Sin was definitely playing this tournament to win, which is why this confused me so much. Uh, Tony Miles had been making a lot of folds that I thought were... Uh, designed to help him ladder up but sin since this table started has been playing aggressive poker where he's trying to get after it and seem to be playing for the bracelet Um, yeah so this this play kind of bewildered me a bit but what are your thoughts do you think that slower equals better across the board in tournament poker Or do you agree with me that at some point we need to get this game moving? I'm not talking about the main event anymore, guys. I'm talking about in general, based on that tweet that I wrote that led to a discussion because someone wrote, someone argued back with me saying, well, what about if the pro has a lot to do that day and he likes the structure because he's able to buy in later? I'm like, well, yeah, but then you don't really have time for the tournament. I don't know. Uh, What do you guys think? Is it always better to have a slow structure? Because to me, it's synonymous. The pros I know who talk about structure, every time they say a tournament has a bad structure, they mean the blinds go up too fast or you don't start with enough chips. If you lose a pot or two, you feel short-stacked. And every time they say it's a good structure, it's a tournament that's going to take forever to finish. And while we have a few minutes here at the end before we wrap up this episode, uh, I also want to commend the World Series of Poker for responding immediately to a tweet by Dutch Boyd. Uh, Dutch Boyd tweeted about this event that they're doing this summer, which is a $1,500 No Limit Hold'em bracelet event at the World Series, only open... To players who have won bracelets in the past. And Dutch's point, which is a good one, was why, are you, why would we play this event where there's only going to be a couple hundred players? Uh, you're taking full rake, you're not adding anything to the prize pool, and there's going to be a lot of really good players because they've all won bracelets. Presumably, some of them know how to play poker. Uh, why would anyone play this tournament? Don't act like you're doing us a favor. Uh, and immediately the World Series of Poker tweeted back at him and said, you know what, Dutch, you're right. I think they even used the phrase our bad and they changed it right away that that tournament is now rake free. I mean, I don't think they're going to add 50,000 to first place or anything, but just having it rake rake free is a nice touch when you're trying to do something for the players you have to do something for the players and from where i sit as critical as i can be of the world series of poker as an organization of the rio as a destination and uh, of a lot of things surrounding the summer in vegas i have to say that once in a while they get it right and to just see that some fair criticism was made and then instantly corrected by someone who's actually given the authority and the power to do so. Um, Presumably Jack Effel was behind the decision. Uh, I love it, and I wish that this would happen more often. Look, companies and uh, leagues and whoever else, organizations, if you get fair criticism, maybe just take a step back and say, this is something I can fix right now. So let's do it because it makes me look good and it makes my players happy. It makes my customers happy. And this is what I complain about a lot throughout the summer. I sometimes feel like people forget who the customers are. The players are the customers. We are funding the whole thing. So please don't act like you're doing me a favor. Like, oh, we, we're we going to have a $1 million prize for this event. You're not doing me a favor, okay? because we all put in our money and that's why the prize pool is what it is. So I really respect the fact that they got this one right. So kudos for that. Uh, Some breaking news. I can't really call it news yet, but there are several sources that are reporting. I can't confirm this, but that the Rio is going to be demolished, that someone is going to buy it and tear it down. Uh, I don't know when this would happen. Uh, if it happens in the next month or two, it's really going to change what <laughs> what our summer looks like for sure. Um, but this is something that, as I'm recording this, is kind of blowing up on Twitter right now. Probably by the time you listen, more information will have gotten out about what exactly is happening. But many of us have long fantasized about the World Series of Poker being almost anywhere else other than at the Rio. And the reason it is at the Rio Right now is because they're one of the few casinos owned by that company that can accommodate an event of this size uh, just in terms of square footage and available space. So uh, it would be interesting if this were to happen before or during the World Series of Poker. What a nightmare it might be to try to find a place to hold the World Series. So (laughs) we'll see. Uh, what happens with all of that now with the last couple minutes here just to update you guys on my uh, baseball <laughs> bet with David Tuckman and of course I'm on the same side as Norman Chad my fellow Marylander uh, the Orioles are currently a five and eight team so uh, they are on pace to Win the bet. Help me win the bet. Again, I just need them to lose fewer than 102 games this summer, and I'm good as gold. Um, yeah, it's uh, it might come down to the wire. The team does not look very good, as none of us really thought they would. Uh, the pitching has been atrocious. Uh, David Tuckman, to his credit, has not been gloating very much. So I really uh, want to thank him because uh, we do have a large bet, as I mentioned, on this. And uh, it's great that I'm not going to have to hear from him every single time the Orioles lose a game. Hey, do you want to buy out? You know, whatever. So classy move as the Orioles have lost seven of their last eight games. Uh, He has been relatively silent about the whole project, realizing, of course, That it's only April. It's a very long season. A lot can happen. Uh, Norman Chad, for his part, is milking this for all it's worth. Pretty much tweeting every day how much he likes his side of the bet. And again, I think that Norman and David have their own wager, which is significantly smaller than the one that Tuck has with me. Which makes it funny that Norman's the one talking trash because it's just a a relatively uh, insignificant amount. Uh, however, I believe that in Norman Chad's world, even winning five dollars from David Tuckman would feel like a million bucks. So that's what's going on with that. So guys, uh, please make sure that you uh, subscribe, rate, and review. On iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Uh, Let me give you a quick teaser, as we call it in the industry. Uh, We are going to have a big, big episode for you next week. And by big, I mean there will be more than one person talking. Yeah, that's right. The return of a guest or even two. Ooh, exciting. (laughs) wait they still have plenty of time to cancel but i think i can pretty much guarantee that next week you will hear a voice other than mine on the show i've said too much already so for everyone here at tournament poker edge i'm clayton fletcher thank you all so much for listening
0: Do in Texas, plays fold them, let them hit me, raise it, Baby, and stay with me. Luck and intuition play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. Little gambling is fun when you're with me. I love it. Russian roulette is not the same without a gun. And baby, when it's love, it's not rough, it isn't fun. Fun. Oh, what?